Welcome to Strangely's Reading of Moby Dick. For an explanation of this project and its rationale, please see the Strangely's Moby Dick and Introduction episode of this podcast. Trigger Warning Moby Dick, like many of us, was created prior to 2019. As such, it may contain language, ideas, and situations which might not be up to the standards of the modern reader. Furthermore, it's about muscular semen hunting creatures that are remarkably phallic in shape. It's gonna get sweaty. Strangely presents an unabridged audiobook of Moby Dick, or The Whale, by Herman Melville, Part 7. Chapter 42. The Whiteness of the Whale. What the white whale was to Ahab has been hinted. What, at times, he was to me, as yet remains unsaid. Aside from those more obvious considerations touching Moby Dick, which could not but occasionally awaken in any man's soul some alarm, there was another thought, or rather vague, nameless horror concerning him, which at times by its intensity completely overpowered all the rest. And yet, so mystical and well-nigh ineffable was it that I almost despair of putting it in a comprehensible form. It was the whiteness of the whale that above all things appalled me. But how can I hope to explain myself here, and yet in some dim, random way explain myself I must, else all these chapters might be not? Though in many natural objects whiteness refiningly enhances beauty, as if imparting some special virtue of its own, as in marbles, japonicas, and pearls, and though various nations have in some way recognized a certain royal preeminence in this hue, even the barbaric, grand old kings of Pegu placing the title Lord of the White Elephants above all other maniloquent ascriptions of dominion, and the modern kings of Siam unfurling the same snow-white quadruped in the royal standard, and the Hanoverian flag bearing the one figure of a snow-white charger, and the great Austrian empire Caesarian heir to overlording Rome having for the imperial color the same imperial hue, and though this preeminence in it applies to the human race itself, giving the white man ideal mastership over every dusky tribe, and though, besides all this whiteness, has been ever made significant of gladness. For among the Romans a white stone marked a joyful day, and though in other mortal sympathies and symbolizings this same hue is made the emblem of many touching noble things, the innocence of brides, the benignity of age, though among the red men of America the giving of the white belt of wampum was the deepest pledge of honor, though in many climes whiteness typifies the majesty of justice in the ermine of the judge and contributes to the daily state of kings and queens drawn by milk-white steeds, though even in the highest mysteries of the most august religions it has been made the symbol of the divine spotlessness and power by the Persian fire-worshippers, the white-forked flame being held the holiest on the altar, and in the Greek mythologies, great Jove himself being made incarnate in a snow-white bull, and according to the noble Iroquois, the midwinter sacrifice of the sacred white dog was by far the holiest festival in their theology, that spotless, faithful creature being held the purest envoy they could send to the great spirit with the annual tidings of their own fidelity, and though directly from the Latin word for white, 
all Christian priests derive the name of one part of their sacred vesture, the alb or tunic, worn beneath the cassock, and though among the holy pomps of the Romish faith white is specially employed in the celebration of the Passion of our Lord, though in the vision of St. John white robes are given to the redeemed and the four and twenty elders stand clothed in white before the great white throne and the holy one that sitteth there white like wool, yet for all these accumulated associations with whatever is sweet and honorable and sublime, there yet lurks an elusive something in the innermost idea of this hue which strikes more of panic to the soul than that redness which affrights in blood. This elusive quality it is which causes the thought of whiteness when divorced from more kindly associations and coupled with any object terrible in itself to heighten that terror to the furthest bounds. Witness the white bear of the poles and the white shark of the tropics. What but their smooth, flaky whiteness makes them the transcendent horrors they are? That ghastly whiteness it is which imparts such an abhorrent mildness, even more loathsome than terrific, to the dumb gloating of their aspect, so that not the fierce-fanged tiger in his heraldic coat can so stagger courage as the white-shrouded bear or shark. Footnote. With reference to the polar bear, it may possibly be urged by him, who would fain go still deeper into this matter, that it is not the whiteness separately regarded which heightens the intolerable hideousness of that brute, for, analyzed that heightened hideousness, it might be said only rises from the circumstance that the irresponsible ferociousness of the creature stands invested in the fleece of celestial innocence and love, and hence, by bringing together two such impossible emotions in our minds, the polar bear frightens us with so unnatural a contrast. But, ever assuming all as this to be true, yet, were it not for the whiteness, you would not have that intensified terror. And footnote. As for the white shark, the white gliding ghostliness of repose in that creature when beheld in his ordinary mood strangely tallies with the same quality in the polar quadruped. This peculiarity is most vividly hit by the French in the name they bestow upon that fish. The Romish mass for the dead begins with requiem eternum, eternal rest, whence requiem denominating the mass itself and any other funeral music. Now, in allusion to the white, silent stillness of death in this shark and the mild deadliness of its habits, the French call him Requin. Bethink thee of the albatross, whence come those clouds of spiritual wonderment and pale dread in which that white phantom sails in all imaginations. Not Coleridge first through that spell, but God's great unflattering laureate, nature. Footnote. I remember the first albatross I ever saw. I w it was during a prolonged gale in waters hard upon the Antarctic seas. From my forenoon watch below, I ascended to the overclouded deck, and there, dashed upon the main hatches, I saw a regal, feathery thing of unspotted whiteness, and with a hooked Roman bill sublime. At intervals it arched forth its vast archangel wings as if to embrace some holy ark. Wondrous flutterings and throbbings shook it. Though bodily unharmed, it uttered cries as some king's ghost in supernatural distress. Through its inexpressible strange eyes, methought I peeped to secrets which took hold of God. As Abraham before the angels, I bowed myself. The white thing was so white. 
its wings so wide, and in those forever exiled waters I had lost the miserable warping memories of traditions and of towns. Long I gazed at that prodigy of plumage, I cannot tell, can only hint the things that darted through me then. But at last I awoke, and turning, asked a sailor what bird was this. Agoni, he replied. Goni? Never had heard that name before. Is it conceivable that this glorious thing is utterly unknown to men ashore? Never. But some time after I learned that Goni was some seaman's name for albatross, so that by no possibility could Coleridge's wild rhyme have aught to do with those mystical impressions which were mine, when I saw that bird upon our deck. For neither had I then read the rhyme, nor knew the bird to be an albatross, yet in saying this I do but indirectly burnish a little brighter the noble merit of the poem and the poet. And footnote. I assert, then, that in the wondrous bodily whiteness of the bird chiefly lurks the secret of the spell. A truth more evinced in this than by a solecism of terms, there are birds called grey albatrosses, and these I have frequently seen, but never with such emotions as when I beheld the Antarctic fowl. But how had the mystic thing been caught? Whisper it not, and I will tell, with a treacherous hook and line as the fowl floated on the sea, at last the captain made a postman of it, tying a lettered leathern tally around its neck with the ship's time and place, and then letting it escape. But I doubt not that leathern tally meant for man was taken off in heaven when the white fowl flew to join the wing-folding, the invoking, the adorning cherubim. Most famous in our western annals and Indian traditions is that of the white steed of the prairies, a magnificent milk-white charger, large-eyed, small-headed, bluff-chested, and with the dignity of a thousand monarchs in his lofty, overscorning carriage. He was the elected Xerxes of vast herds of wild horses, whose pasture in those days were only fenced by the Rocky Mountains and the Alleghenies. At their flaming head he whispered trooped it like that chosen star which every evening leads on the hosts of light. The flashing cascade of his mane, the curving comet of his tail, invested him with housings more resplendent than gold and silver beaters could have furnished him, a most imperial and archangelical apparition of that unfallen western world which to the eyes of the old trappers and hunters revived the glories of those primeval times when Adam walked majestic as a god, bluff-browed and fearless as this mighty steed. Whether marching amid his aides and marshals in the van of countless cohorts that endlessly streamed it over the plains, like in Ohio, or whether his circumambient subjects browsing all around at the horizon, the white steed gallopingly reviewed them with warm nostrils reddening through his cool milkiness. In whatever aspect he presented himself, always to the bravest Indians, he was the object of trembling reverence and awe. Nor can it be questioned from what stands on legendary record of this noble horse that it was his spiritual whiteness chiefly which so clothed him with divineness, and that this divineness had that in it which, though commanding worship, at the same time enforced a certain nameless terror. But there are other instances where this whiteness loses all that accessory and strange glory which invests it in the white steed and the albatross. What is it that in an albino man so peculiarly repels and often shocks the eye as that sometimes he is loathed by his own kith and kin? 
Is it that whiteness which invests him, a thing expressed by the name he bears? The albino is well made as other men, he has no substantive deformity, and yet this mere aspect of an all-pervading whiteness makes him more strangely hideous than the ugliest aberration. Why should this be so? Nor in quite other aspects does nature in her least palpable but not the less malicious agencies fail to enlist among her forces this crowning attribute of the terrible. From its snowy aspect the gauntleted ghost of the southern seas has been denominated by the white squall. Nor in some historic instances has the art of human malice omitted so potent an auxiliary. How wildly it heightens the effect of that passage in Frossart, when masked in the snowy symbol of their faction, the desperate white hoods of Ghent murder their bailiff in the marketplace. Nor in some things does the common hereditary experience of all mankind fail to bear witness to the supernaturalism of this hue. It cannot well be doubted that the one visible quality in the aspect of the dead which most appalls the gazer is the marble pallor lingering there as if indeed that pallor were as much like the badge of consternation in the other world as of mortal trepidation here. And from that pallor of the dead we borrow the expressive hue of the shroud in which we wrap them. Nor even in our superstitions do we fail to throw the same snowy mantle round our phantoms, all ghosts rising in a milk-white fog. Yea, while these terrors seize us, let us add that even the king of terrors, who's personified by the evangelist, rides his pallid horse. Therefore, in his other moods, symbolize whatever grand or gracious thing he will by whiteness, no man can deny that in his profoundest idealized significance it calls up a peculiar apparition to the soul. But though without dissent this point be fixed, how is mortal man to account for it? To analyze it would seem impossible. Can we then, by the citation of some of those instances wherein this thing of whiteness, though for the time either wholly or in great part stripped of all direct associations, calculated to impart it aught fearful, but nevertheless is found to exert over us the same sorcery, however modified, can we thus hope to light upon some chance clue to conduct us to the hidden cause we seek? Let us try. But in a matter like this, subtlety appeals to subtlety, and without imagination no man can follow another into these halls, and though doubtless some at least of the imaginative impressions about to be presented may have been shared by most men, yet few perhaps were entirely conscious of them at the time, and may therefore not be able to recall them now. Why, to the man of untutored ideality, who happens to be but loosely acquainted with the peculiar character of the day, does the bare mention of Whitsuntide marshal in the fancy such long, dreary, speechless processions of slow-pacing pilgrims, downcast and hooded with new-fallen snow? Or to the unread, unsophisticated Protestant of the Middle American states, why does the passing mention of a white friar or a white nun evoke such an eyeless statue in the soul? Or, what is there apart from the traditions of dungeon warriors and kings, which will not wholly account for it, that makes the White Tower of London tell so much more strongly on the imagination of an untraveled American than those other storied structures, its neighbors, the Byward Tower, or even the Bloody? And those sublimer towers, the white mountains of New Hampshire, whence, in peculiar moods, comes that gigantic ghostliness over the soul at the bare mention of that name.
while the thought of Virginia's blue ridge is full of a soft, dewy, distant dreaminess? Or why, irrespective of all latitudes and longitudes, does the name of the White Sea exert such a spectralness over the fancy, while that of the Yellow Sea lulls us with mortal thoughts of long, lacquered, mild afternoons on the waves, followed by the gaudiest and yet sleepiest of sunsets? Or to choose a wholly unsubstantial instance, purely addressed to the fancy? Why, in reading the old fairy tales of Central Europe, does the tall pale man of the heart's forest whose changeless pallor unrustingly glides through the green of the groves why is this phantom more terrible than all the whooping imps of the blocksburg nor is it altogether the remembrance of her cathedral toppling earthquakes nor the stampedos of her frantic seas nor the tearlessness of arid skies that never rain, nor the sight of her wide field of leaning spires, wrenched copestones and crosses all adroop like canted yards of anchored fleets, and her suburban avenues of house walls lying over upon each other as a tossed pack of cards, it is not these things which makes tearless Lima the strangest, saddest city thou canst see. For Lima has taken the white veil, and there is a higher horror in this whiteness of her woe. Old as Pizarro, this whiteness keeps her ruins forever new, admits not the cheerful greenness of complete decay, spreads over her broken ramparts the rigid pallor of an apoplexy that fixes its own distortions. I know that, to the common apprehension, this phenomenon of whiteness is not confessed to be the prime agent in exaggerating the terror of objects, otherwise terrible, nor to the unimaginative mind is there aught of terror in those appearances whose awfulness is another mind almost solely consists in this one phenomenon, especially when exhibited under any form at all approaching to muteness or universality. What I mean by these two statements may perhaps be respectively elucidated in the following examples. First, the mariner, when drawing nigh the coasts of foreign lands, if by night he hear the roar of breakers, starts to vigilance, and feels just enough of trepidation to sharpen all his faculties, but under precisely similar circumstances let him be called from his hammock to view his ship sailing through a midnight sea of milky whiteness, as if from encircling headlands shoals of combed white bears were swimming round him, then he feels a silent superstitious dread. The shrouded phantom of the whitened vapors is horrible to him as a real ghost. In vain, the lead assures him that he is still off soundings. Heart and helm, they both go down. He never rests till blue water is under him again. Yet, where is the mariner who will tell thee, Sir, it was not so much the fear of striking hidden rocks as the fear of that hideous whiteness that so stirred me? Second, to the native Indian of Peru, the continual sight of the snow-houted Andes conveys not of dread, except perhaps in the mere fancying of the eternal frosted desolateness reigning at such vast altitudes, and the natural conceit of what a fearfulness it would be to lose oneself in such inhuman solitudes. Much the same is it with the backwoodsman of the West, who with comparative indifference views an unbounded prairie sheeted with driven snow, no shadow of tree or twig to break the fixed trance of whiteness. Not so the sailor. Beholding the scenery of the Antarctic seas, where at times by some infernal trick of ledger domain in the powers of frost and air, he shivering and half shipwrecked, instead of rainbows speaking hope and solace in his misery, views what seems a boundless churchyard grinning upon him with its lean ice monuments 
and splintered crosses. But thou sayest, methinks, that white-led chapter about whiteness is but a white flag hung out from a craven soul. Thou surrenderest to hypo, Ishmael. Tell me, why this strong young colt, fold in some peaceful valley in Vermont, far removed from all beasts of prey, why is it that upon the sunniest day, if you but shake a fresh buffalo robe behind him so that he cannot even see it, but only smells its wild animal muskiness, why will he start, snort, and with bursting eyes paw the ground in frenzies of affright? There is no remembrance in him of any gorings of wild creatures in his green northern home, so that the strange muskiness he smells cannot recall to him anything associated with the experience of former perils. For what knows he, this New England colt of the black bisons of distant Oregon? No. But here thou beholdest, even in a dumb brute, the instinct of the knowledge of the demonism in the world, though thousands of miles from Oregon, still, when he smells that savage musk, the rending, goring bison herds are as present as to the deserted wild foal of the prairies, which this instant they may be trampling into dust. Thus, then, the muffled rollings of a milky sea, the bleak rustlings of the festooned frosts of mountains, the desolate shiftings of the wind-rowed snows of prairies, all these, to Ishmael, are as the shaking of that buffalo robe to that frightened colt. Though neither knows where lie the nameless things of which the mystic sign gives forth such hints, yet with me, as with the colt, somewhere those things must exist. Though in many of its aspects this visible world seems formed in love, the invisible spheres were formed in fright. But not yet have we solved the incantation of this whiteness and learned why it appeals with such power to the soul, and more strange and far more portentous why, as we have seen, it is at once the most meaning symbol of spiritual things, nay, the very veil of the Christian's deity, and yet should be, as it is, the intensifying agent in things the most appalling to mankind. It is that by its indefiniteness it shadows forth the heartless voids and immensities of the universe, and thus stabs us from behind with the thoughts of annihilation when beholding the white depths of the Milky Way. Or is it that, as in essence, whiteness is not so much a color as the visible absence of color, and at the same time the concrete of all colors? Is it for these reasons that there is such a dumb blankness, full of meaning, in a wide landscape of snows, a colorless all-color of atheism from which we shrink? And when we consider that other theory of the natural philosophers, that all other earthly hues, every stately or lovely emblazoning, the sweet tinges of sunset skies and woods, yea, and the gilded velvets of butterflies and the butterfly cheeks of young girls, all these are but subtle deceits, not actually inherent in substances, but only laid on from without, so that all defied nature absolutely paints like the harlot, whose allurements cover nothing but the charnel house within. And when we proceed further and consider that the mystical cosmetic which produces every one of her hues, the great principle of light forever remains white or colorless in itself, and if operating without medium upon matter, would touch all objects, even tulips and roses, with its own blank tinge. Pondering all this, the palsied universe lies before us a leper, 
and like willful travelers in Lapland who refuse to wear colored and coloring glasses upon their eyes so the wretched infidel gazes himself blind at the monumental white shroud that wraps all the prospect around him. And of all these things, the albino whale was the symbol. Wonder ye then at the fiery hunt? Chapter 43 Hark! Hist! Did you hear that noise, Kabako? It was the middle watch, a fair moonlight. The seamen were standing in a cordon, extending from one of the freshwater butts in the waist to the scuttle butt near the taffrail. In this manner, they passed the buckets to fill the scuttle butt. Standing for the most part on the hallowed precincts of the quarter deck, they were careful not to speak or rustle their feet. From hand to hand, the buckets went in the deepest silence, only broken by the occasional flap of a sail and the steady hum of the unceasingly advancing keel. It was in the midst of this repose that Archie, one of the cordon, whose post was near the after-hatches, whispered to his neighbor, a cholo, the words above, Hist! Did you hear that, Kabako? Take the bucket, will you, Archie? What noise do you mean? There it is again, under the hatches. Don't you hear it? A cough. It sounded like a cough. Cough be damned. Pass along that return bucket. There! There it is! It sounds like two or three sleepers turning over now. Caramba! Have done, shipmate, will ye? It's three soaked biscuits ye eat for supper turning over inside of ye, nothing else. Look to the bucket! Say what you will, shipmate. I have sharp ears. Hey, you are the chap, ain't ye? That heard the hum of the old Quakeress's knitting needles fifty miles at sea from Nantucket. You're the chap. Grin away, we'll see what turns up. Hark ye, Kabako! There is somebody down in the afterhold that has not been seen on deck, and I suspect our old mogul knows something of it too. I heard Stubtail Flask one morning, watch, that there was something of that sort in the wind. Tch! The bucket! Chapter 44 The Chart Had you followed Captain Ahab down into his cabin after the squall that took place on the night succeeding that wild ratification of his purpose with his crew, you would have seen him go to a locker in the transom and, bringing out a large wrinkled roll of yellowish sea charts, spread them before him on his screwed-down table. Then, seating himself before it, you would have seen him intently study the various lines and shadows which there met his eye and with slow but steady pencil trace additional courses over spaces that before were blank. At intervals he would refer to piles of old logbooks beside him wherein were set down the seasons and places in which, on various former voyages of various ships, sperm whales had been captured or seen. While thus employed, the heavy pewter lamp suspended in chains over his head continually rocked with the motion of the ship, and forever threw shifting gleams and shadows of lines upon his wrinkled brow, till it almost seemed that while he himself was marking out lines and courses on the wrinkled charts, some invisible pencil was also tracing lines and courses upon the deeply marked chart of his forehead. But it was not this night in particular in the solitude of his cabin, Ahab thus pondered over his charts. But it was not this night in particular that in the solitude of his cabin, Ahab thus pondered over his charts. Almost every other night they were brought out, almost every other night some pencil marks were effaced and others were substituted, for with the charts of all four oceans before him, Ahab was threading a maze of currents and eddies with a view to more certain accomplishment of that monomaniac thought of his soul.
Now, to anyone not fully acquainted with the ways of the Leviathans, it might seem an absurdly hopeless task thus to seek out one solitary creature in the unhooped oceans of this planet, but not so did it seem to Ahab, who knew the sets of all tides and currents, and thereby calculating the driftings of the sperm whale's food, and also calling to mind the regular, ascertained seasons for hunting him in particular latitudes, could arrive at reasonable surmises almost approaching to certainties concerning the timeliest day to be upon this or that ground in search of his prey. So assured, indeed, is the fact concerning the periodicalness of the sperm whales resorting to given waters that many hunters believe that, could he be closely observed and studied throughout the world, were the logs for one voyage of the entire whale fleet carefully collated, then the migrations of the sperm whale would be found to correspond invariably to those of the herring shoals or the flights of swallows. On this hint, attempts have been made to construct elaborate migratory charts of the sperm whale. Footnote. Since the above was written, the statement is happily borne out in an official circular issued by Lieutenant Murray of the National Observatory, Washington, April 16, 1851. By that circular, it appears that precisely such a chart is in course of completion and portions of it are presented in the circular. This chart divides the ocean into districts of five degrees of latitude by five degrees of longitude, perpendicularly through each of which districts are twelve columns for the twelve months, and horizontally through each of which districts are three lines, one to show the number of days that have been spent in each month in every district, and the two others to show the number of days in which whales, sperm, or right have been seen. And footnote. Besides, when making a passage from one feeding ground to another, the sperm whales, guided by some infallible instinct, say, rather, secret intelligence from the deity, mostly swim in veins, as they are called, continuing their way along a given ocean line with such undeviating exactitude that no ship ever sailed her course by any chart with one tithe of such marvelous precision. Though in these cases the direction taken by any one whale be straight as a surveyor's parallel, and though the line of advance be strictly confined to its own unavoidable straight wake, yet the arbitrary vein in which at these times he is said to swim generally embraces some few miles in width, more or less as the vein is presumed to expand or contract, but never exceeds the visual sweep from the whale ship's mastheads, when circumspectly gliding along this magic zone. The sum is that at particular seasons within the breadth and along that path, migrating whales may with great confidence be looked for. And hence, not only at substantiated times upon well-known separate feeding grounds could Ahab hope to encounter his prey, but in crossing the widest expanses of water between those grounds, he could, by his art, so place and time himself on his way as even then not to be wholly without prospect of a meeting. There was a circumstance which at first seemed to entangle his delirious but still methodical scheme, but not so in the reality, perhaps. Though the gregarious sperm whales have their regular seasons for particular grounds, yet in general you cannot conclude that the herds which haunted such and such a latitude or longitude this year, say, will turn out to be identically the same to those that were found there the preceding season, though there are peculiar and unquestionable instances where the contrary of this has proved true. In general, the same remark, only within a less wide limit, applies to the solitaries and hermits among the matured aged sperm whales. 
So that though Moby Dick had in a former year been seen, for example, on what is called the Seychelles ground in the Indian Ocean or Volcano Bay on the Japanese coast, yet it did not follow that were the Pequod to visit either of those spots in any subsequent corresponding season, she would infallibly encounter him there. So, too, some other feeding grounds where he had at times revealed himself, but all these seemed only his casual stopping places and ocean inns, so to speak, not his places of prolonged abode, and where Ahab's chances of accomplishing his object have hitherto been spoken of, allusion has only been made to whatever wayside, antecedent, extra prospects were his, ere a particular set time or place were attainable where all possibilities would become probabilities, and, as Ahab fondly thought, every possibility the next thing to a certainty. That particular set time and place were conjoined in the one technical phrase, the season on the line. For there, and then, for several consecutive years, Moby Dick had been periodically described, lingering in those waters for a while as the sun in its annual round loiters for a particular interval in any one sign of the zodiac. There it was, too, that most of the deadly encounters with the white whale had taken place, where the waves were storied with his deeds, where also was that tragic spot where the monomaniac old man had found the awful motive to his vengeance. But in the cautious comprehensiveness and unloitering vigilance with which Ahab threw his brooding soul into this unfaltering hunt, he would not permit himself to rest all his hopes upon the one crowning fact above mentioned however flattering it might be to those hopes, nor in the sleeplessness of his vow could he so tranquilize his unquiet heart as to postpone all intervening quest. Now the Pequod had sailed from Nantucket at the very beginning of the season on the line. No possible endeavor then could enable her commander to make the great passage southwards, double Cape Horn, and then running down sixty degrees of latitude arrive in the equatorial Pacific in time to cruise there. Therefore, he must wait for the next ensuing season. Yet, the premature hour of the Pequod's sailing had, perhaps, been correctly selected by Ahab with a view to this very complexion of things. Because an interval of 365 days and nights was before him, an interval which, instead of impatiently enduring ashore, he would spend in a miscellaneous hunt, if by chance the white whale, spending his vacation in seas far remote from his periodical feeding grounds, should turn up his wrinkled brow off the Persian Gulf, or in the Bengal Bay, or China Seas, or in any other waters haunted by his race, so that monsoons, pampas, nor'westers, hamatans, trades, any wind but the Levantar and Simoon might blow Moby Dick into the devious zigzag world circle of the Pequod's circumnavigating wake. But granting all this, yet, regarded discreetly and coolly, seems it not but a mad idea, this that in the broad boundless ocean one solitary whale, even if encountered, should be thought capable of individual recognition from his hunter, even as a white-bearded mufti in the thronged thoroughfares of Constantinople? Yes. For the particular snow-white brow of Moby Dick and his snow-white hump could not but be unmistakable. And I have not tallied the whale, Ahab would mutter to himself, as after poring over his charts till long after midnight he would throw himself back in reveries. Tallied him, and shall he escape? His broad fins are bored and scalloped out like a lost sheep's ear.
and here his mad mind would run on in a breathless race till all weariness and faintness of pondering came over him and in the open air of the deck he would seek to recover his strength ah god what traces of torment does that man endure who is consumed with one unachieved revengeful desire he sleeps with clenched hands and wakes with his own bloody nails in his palms often when forced from his hammock by exhausting and intolerably vivid dreams of the night which resuming his own intense thoughts through the day carried them on amid a clashing of frenzies and whirled them round and round and round in his bra blazing brain till the very throbbing of his life-spot became insufferable anguish and when as sometimes the case those spiritual throes in him heaved his being up from its base and a chasm seemed opening in him from which forked flames and lightning shot up and accursed fiends beckoned him to leap down among them when this hell in himself yawned beneath him a wild cry would be heard through the ship and with glaring eyes ahab would burst from his stateroom as though escaping from a bed that was on fire yet these perhaps instead of being the unsuppressible symptoms of some latent weakness or fright at his own resolve were but the plainest tokens of its intensity for at such times crazy ahab the scheming unappeasedly steadfast hunter of the white whale this ahab that had gone to his hammock was not the agent that so caused him to burst from it in horror again the latter was the eternal living principle or soul in him and in sleep being for the time dissociated from the characterizing mind which at other times employed it for its outer vehicle or agent it spontaneously sought escape from the scorching contiguity of the frantic thing of which for the time it was no longer an integral but as the mind does not exist unless leagued with the soul therefore it must have been that in ahab's case yielding up all his thoughts and fancies to his one supreme purpose that purpose by its own sheer inveteracy of will forced itself against gods and devils into a kind of self-assured independent being of its own nay could grimly live and burn while the common vitality in which it was conjoined fled horror-stricken from the unbidden and unfathered birth therefore the tormented spirit that glared out of bodily eyes when what seemed ahab rushed from his room was for the time but a vacated thing a formless somnambulistic being a ray of living light to be sure but without an object to color and therefore a blankness in itself god help thee old man thy thoughts have created a creature in thee and he whose intense thinking thus makes him a prometheus a vulture feeds upon that heart forever that vulture the very creature he creates chapter forty five the affidavit so far as what there may be of a narrative in this book and indeed as indirectly touching one or two very interesting and curious particulars in the habits of sperm whales the foregoing chapter in its earlier part is as important a one as will be found in this volume but the leading matter of it requires to be still further and more familiarly engaged upon in order to be adequately understood and moreover to take away any incredulity which a profound ignorance of the entire subject may induce in some minds as to the natural verity of the main points of this affair practically or reliably known to me as a whaleman and from these citations i take it the conclusion aimed at will naturally follow of itself 
First, I have personally known three instances where a whale, after receiving a harpoon, has effected a complete escape and after an interval, in some instance, of three years, has been again struck by the same hand and slain. When the two irons, both marked by the same private cipher, have been taken from the body in the instance where three years intervened between the flinging of the two harpoons, and I think it may have been something more than that, the man who darted them, happening in the interval to go in a trading ship on a voyage to Africa, went ashore there, joined a discovery party, and penetrated far into the interior, where he then traveled for a period of nearly two years, often endangered by serpents, savages, tigers, poisonous miasmas, with all the other common perils incident to wandering in the heart of unknown regions. Meanwhile, the whale he had struck must have been on its own travels. No doubt it had thrice circumnavigated the globe, brushing with its flanks all the coasts of Africa, but to no purpose. This man and this whale again came together, and the one vanquished the other. I say, I, myself, have known three instances similar to this, that it is in two of them I saw the whale struck, and upon the second attack saw the two irons with the respective marks cut in them, afterwards taken from the dead fish. In the three-year instance it so fell out that I was in the boat both times, first and last, and the last time distinctly recognized the peculiar sort of huge mole under the whale's eye which I had observed there three years previous. I say three years, but I'm pretty sure it was more than that. Here are three instances, then, which I personally know the truth of, but I have heard in, of many other instances from persons whose veracity in the matter there is no good ground to impeach. Secondly, it is well known in the sperm whale fishery, however ignorant the world ashore may be of it, that there have been several memorable historical instances where a particular whale in the ocean has been at distant times and places popularly cognizable. Why such a whale became thus marked was not altogether and originally owing to his bodily peculiarities as distinguished from other whales, for, however, in that respect any chance whale may be, they soon put an end to his peculiarities by killing him and boiling him down into a peculiarly valuable oil. No. The reason was this, that from the fatal experiences of the fishery there hung a terrible prestige of perilousness about such a whale as there did about Rinaldo Rinaldini, insomuch that most fishermen were content to recognize him by merely touching their tarpaulins when he would be discovered lounging by them on the sea, without seeking to cultivate a more intimate acquaintance, like some poor devils ashore that happened to know an irascible old man. They make distant, unobtrusive salutations to him in the street, lest, if they pursued the acquaintance further, they might receive a summary thump for their presumption. But not only did each of these famous whales enjoy a great individual celebrity, nay, you may call it an ocean-wide renown, not only was he famous in life and now is immortal in forecastle stories after death, but he was admitted into all the rights, privileges, and distinctions of a name, had as much a name indeed as Cambyses or Caesar. Was it not so, O Timor Tom, thou famed leviathan, scarred like an iceberg, who so long didst lurk in the oriental straits of that name, whose spout was oft seen from the palmy beach of Ombay? Was it not so, O New Zealand Jack, thou terror of all cruisers that crossed their wakes in the vicinity of the Tattoo Land? Was it not so, O Morquain, king of Japan, whose lofty jet they say at times assumed the semblance of a snow-white cross against the sky? Was it not so, O Don Miguel, thou Chilean whale, marked like an old tortoise with mystic hieroglyphics upon the back? 
In plain prose, here are four whales as well known to the students of cetacean history as Marius or Scylla to the classical scholar. But this is not all. New Zealand Tom and Don Miguel, after at various times creating great havoc among the boats of different vessels, were finally gone in quest of, systematically hunted out, chased and killed by valiant whaling captains who heaved up their anchors with that express object as much in view as in setting out through the Narragansett woods Captain Butler of old had in mind to capture the notorious murderous savage Anawan, the headmost warrior of the Indian King Philip. I do not know where I can find a better place than just here to make mention of one or two other things which to me seem important as in printed form establishing in all respects the reasonableness of the whole story of the white whale, more especially the catastrophe. For this is one of those disheartening instances where truth requires full as much bolstering as error. So ignorant as most landsmen of some of the plainest and most palpable wonders of the world, that without some hints touching the plain facts, historical and otherwise, of the fishery, they might scout at M Moby Dick as a monstrous fable, or still worse and more detestable, a hideous and intolerable allegory. First, Though most men have some vague fitting ideas of the general perils of the grand fishery, yet they have nothing like a fixed, vivid conception of those perils and the frequency with which they recur. One reason, perhaps, is that not one in fifty of the actual disasters and deaths by casualties in the fishery ever finds a public record at home, however transient and immediately forgotten that record. Do you suppose that the poor fellow there, who this moment perhaps caught by a whale line off the coast of New Guinea, is being carried down to the bottom of the sea by the sounding leviathan, do you suppose that poor fellow's name will appear in the newspaper obituary you will read tomorrow at your breakfast? No, because the mails are very irregular between here and New Guinea. In fact, did you ever hear what might be called regular news, direct or indirect, from New Guinea? Yet, I tell you that upon one particular voyage which I made to the Pacific, among many others, we spoke thirty different ships, each one of which had had a death by a whale, some of them more than one, and three that had each lost a boat's crew. For God's sake, be economical with your lamps and candles. Not a gallon you burn, but at least one drop of man's blood was spilled for it. Secondly, People ashore have indeed some indefinite idea that a whale is an enormous creature of enormous power, but I have ever found that when narrating to them some specific example of this twofold enormousness, they have significantly complimented me upon my facetiousness. When I declare upon my soul I had no more idea of being facetious than Moses when he wrote the history of the plagues of Egypt. But fortunately the special point I here seek can be established upon testimony entirely independent of my own. That point is this. The sperm whale is, in some cases, sufficiently powerful, knowing, and judiciously malicious, as with direct aforethought to stave in, utterly destroy, and sink a large ship. And what is more, the sperm whale has done it. First, in the year 1820, the ship Essex, Captain Pollard, of Nantucket was cruising in the Pacific Ocean. One day she saw spouts, lowered her boats, and gave chase to a shoal of sperm whales. Ere long, several of the whales were wounded, when, suddenly, a very large whale, escaping from the boats, issued from the shoal and bore directly down upon the ship. 
Dashing his forehead against her hull, he so stove her in that in less than ten minutes she settled down and fell over. Not a surviving plank of her has been seen since. After the severest exposure, part of the crew reached the land in their boats. Being returned home at last, Captain Pollard once more sailed for the Pacific in command of another ship, but the gods shipwrecked him again upon unknown rocks and breakers, for the second time his ship was utterly lost, and forthwith, forswearing the sea, he has never tempted it since. At this day, Captain Pollard is a resident of Nantucket. I have seen Owen Chase, who was chief mate of the Essex at the time of the tragedy. I have read his plain and faithful narrative. I have conversed with his son, and this within a few miles of the scene of the catastrophe. Footnote. The following are extracts from Chase's narrative. Every fact seemed to warrant me in concluding that it was anything but chance which directed his operations. He made two several attacks upon the ship at a short interval between them, both of which, by their direction, were calculated to do us the most injury by being made ahead and thereby combining the speed of the two objects for the shock, to effect which the exact maneuvers which he made were necessary. His aspect was most horrible, and such an in as indicated resentment and fury, he came directly from the shoal which we had just before entered, and in which had struck three of his companions, as if fired with revenge for their sufferings. Again, at all events the whole circumstances taken together had happened before my own eyes and proceeding at the time impressions in my mind of decided, calculating mischief on the part of the whale, many of which impressions I cannot now recall, Induce me to be satisfied that I am correct in my opinion. Here are some of his reflections some time after quitting the ship, during a black night in an open boat when almost despairing of reaching any hospitable shore. The dark ocean and swelling waters were nothing. The fears of being swallowed up by some dreadful tempest or dashed upon hidden rocks, which all other ordinary subjects or fearful contemplation seemed scarcely entitled to a moment's thought, the dismal-looking wreck, and the horrid aspect and revenge of the whale, wholly engrossing my reflections until day again made its appearance. In another place, page 45, he speaks of the mysterious and mortal attack of the animal. And footnote. Secondly, the ship Union, also of Nantucket, was in the year 1807 totally lost off the Azores by a similar onset. But the authentic particulars of this catastrophe I have never chanced to encounter, though from the whale hunters I have now and then heard casual allusions to it. Thirdly, some eighteen or twenty years ago, Commodore J., then commanding an American sloop of war of the first class, happened to be dining with a party of whaling captains on board a Nantucket ship in the harbor of Oahu, Sandwich Islands. Conversation turning upon whales, the Commodore was pleased to be skeptical, touching the amazing strength ascribed to them by the professional gentleman present. He peremptorily denied, for example, that any whale could smite his stout sloop of war as to cause her to leak so much as a thimbleful. Very good. But there is more coming. Some weeks after, the Commodore set sail in his impregnable craft for Valparaiso, but he was stopped on the way by a portly sperm whale that begged a few moments' confidential business with him, that business consisting in fetching the Commodore's craft such a thwack that with all his pumps going he made straight for the nearest port to heave down and repair. I am not superstitious, but I consider the Commodore's interview with that whale as providential. Was not Saul of Tarsus converted from unbelief by a similar fright? 
I tell you, the sperm whale will stand no nonsense. I will now refer you to Langsdorff's voyages for a little circumstance in point, peculiarly interesting to the writer hereof. Langsdorff, you must know, by the way, was attached to the Russian Admiral Kuzenstern's famous discovery expedition in the beginning of the present century. Captain Langsdorff thus begins his 17th chapter. By the 13th of May our ship was ready to sail, and the next day we went out to the open sea, on our way to Oktosh. The weather was very clear and fine, but so intolerably cold that we were obliged to keep on our fur clothing. For some days we had very little wind. It was not till the 19th that a brisk gale from the northeast sprang up. An uncommon large whale, the body of which was larger than the ship itself, lay almost at the surface of the water but was not perceived by anyone on board till the moment when our ship, which was in full sail, was almost upon him, so that it was impossible to prevent its striking against him. We were thus placed in the most imminent danger as this gigantic creature, setting up its back, raising the ship three feet at least out of the water. The masts reeled and the sails fell altogether, while we who were below all sprang instantly upon the deck, concluding that we had struck upon some rock. Instead of this, we saw the monster sailing off with the utmost gravity and solemnity. Captain De Wolf applied immediately to the pumps to examine whether or not the vessel had received any damage from the shock, but we found that, very happily, it had escaped entirely uninjured. Now the Captain De Wolf alluded to as commanding the ship in question is a New Englander, who, after a long life of unusual adventures as a sea captain, this day resides in the village of Dorchester, near Boston. I have the honor of being a nephew of his. I have particularly questioned him concerning this passage in Langsdorff. He substantiates every word. The ship, however, was by no means a large one, a Russian craft built on the Siberian coast, and purchased by my uncle after bartering away the vessel in which he sailed from home. In that up-and-down manly book of old-fashioned adventure, so full, too, of honest wonders, the voyage of Lionel Wafer, one of ancient Dampier's old chums, I found a little matter set down so like that just quoted from Langsdorff that I cannot forbear inserting it here for a corroborative example, if such be needed. Lionel, it seems, was on his way to join Fernando, as he calls the modern Juan Fernandes. In our way thither, he says, about four o'clock in the morning, we were about one hundred and fifty leagues from the main of America. Our ship felt a terrible shock, which put our men in such consternation as they could hardly tell where they were, were or what to think, but every one began preparing for death. And indeed, the shock was so sudden and violent that we took it for granted the ship had been struck against a rock. But when the amazement was a little over, we cast the lead and sounded, but found no ground." The suddenness of the shock made the guns leap in their carriages, and several of the men were shaken out of their hammocks. Captain Davis, who lay with his head on the gun, was thrown out of the cabin. Lionel then goes on to impute the shock to an earthquake, and seems to substantiate the imputation by stating that a great earthquake, somewhere about that time, did actually do great mischief along the Spanish land. But I should not wonder if, in the darkness of that early hour of the morning, the shock was, after all, caused by an unseen whale vertically bumping the hull from beneath. I might proceed with several more examples, one way or another, known to me of the great power and malice at times of the sperm whale in more than one instance. He has been known not only to chase the assaulting boats to their ships, but to pursue the ship itself and long withstand all the lances hurled at him from its decks. The English ship, 
Pusey Hall can tell a story on that head, and as for his strength, let me say that there have been examples where the lines attached to a running sperm whale have, in a calm, been transferred to the ship and secured there, the whale towing her great hull through the water as a horse walks off with a cart. Again, it is very often observed, if the sperm whale, once struck, is allowed time to rally, he then acts not so often with blind rage as with willful, deliberate designs of destruction to his pursuers. Nor is it without conveying some eloquent indication of his character that upon being attacked he will frequently open his mouth and retain it in that dread expansion for several consecutive minutes. But I must be content with only one more and a concluding illustration a remarkable and most significant one, by which you will not fail to see that not only is the most marvelous event in this book corroborated by plain facts of the present day, but that these marvels, like all marvels, are mere repetitions of the ages, so that for the millionth time we say Amen with Solomon. Verily, there is nothing new under the sun. In the sixth Christian century lived Procopius, a Christian magistrate in Constantinople, in the days when Justinian was emperor and Belisarius general. As many know, he wrote the history of his own times, a work every way of uncommon value. By the best authorities, he has always been considered a most trustworthy and unexaggerating historian, except in some one or two particulars not at all affecting the matter presently to be mentioned. Now, in this history of his, Procopius mentions that during the term of his prefecture at Constantinople, a great sea monster was captured in the neighboring Propontis, or Sea of Marmora, after having destroyed vessels at intervals in those waters for a period of more than fifty years. A fact thus set down in substantial history cannot easily be gainsaid, nor is there any reason it should be. Of what precise species this sea monster was is not mentioned, but as he destroyed ships, as well as for other reasons, he must have been a whale, and I am strongly inclined to think a sperm whale. And I will tell you why. For a long time I fancied that the sperm whale had been always unknown in the Mediterranean and the deep waters connecting with it. Even now I am certain that those seas are not, and perhaps never can be, in the present constitution of things, a place for his habitual gregarious resort. But further investigations have recently proved to me that in modern times there have been isolated instances of the presence of the sperm whale in the Mediterranean. I am told on good authority that on the Barbary coast a Commodore Davis of the British Navy found the skeleton of a sperm whale. Now, as a vessel of war readily passes through the Dardanelles, hence a sperm whale could, by the same route, pass out of the Mediterranean into the Propontis. In the Propontis, as far as I can learn, none of that peculiar substance called Brit is to be found, the aliment of the right whale, but I have every reason to believe that the food of the sperm whale, squid, or cuttlefish lurks at the bottom of that sea, because large creatures, but by no means the largest of that sort, have been found at its surface. If, then, you properly put these statements together and reason upon them a bit, you will clearly perceive that, according to all human reasoning, Procopius's sea monster, that for half a century stove the ships of a Roman emperor, must in all probability have been a sperm whale. Chapter 46 Surmises Though consumed with the hot fire of his purpose, Ahab, in all his thoughts and actions, ever had in view the ultimate capture of Moby Dick. 
Though he seemed ready to sacrifice all mortal interests to that one passion, nevertheless it may have been that he was by nature and long habituation far too wedded to a fiery whaleman's ways altogether to abandon the collateral prosecution of the voyage. Or, at least if this were otherwise, there were not wanting other motives much more influential with him. It would be refining too much, perhaps, even considering his monomania, to hint that his vindictiveness toward the white whale might have possibly extended itself in some degree to all sperm whales, and that the more monsters he slew by so much the more he multiplied the chances that each subsequently encountered whale would prove to be the hated one he hunted. But if such an hypothesis be indeed exceptionable, there were still additional considerations which, though not so strictly according with the wildness of his ruling passion, yet were by no means incapable of swaying him. To accomplish his object, Ahab must use tools, and of all tools used in the shadow of the moon, men are most apt to get out of order. He knew, for example, that however magnetic his ascendancy in some respects was over Starbuck, Yet that ascendancy did not cover the complete spiritual man any more than mere corporeal superiority involves intellectual mastership. For to the purely spiritual, the intellectual but stand in a sort of corporeal relation. Starbuck's body and Starbuck's coerced will were Ahab's, so long as Ahab kept his magnet at Starbuck's brain. Still, he knew that for all this the chief mate, in his soul, abhorred his captain's quest, and could he, would justifully disintegrate himself from it, or even frustrate it. It might be that a long interval would elapse ere the white whale was seen. During that long interval, Starbuck would ever be apt to fall into open relapses of rebellion against his captain's leadership. Unless some ordinary, prudential, circumstantial influences were brought to bear upon him. Not only that, but the subtle insanity of Ahab respecting Moby Dick was no ways more significantly manifested than in his superlative sense and shrewdness in foreseeing that, for the present, the hunt should in some way be stripped of that strange imaginative impiousness which naturally invested it, that the full terror of the voyage must be kept withdrawn into the obscure background for few men's courage is proof against protracted meditation unrelieved by action, that when they stood their long night watches, his officers and men must have some nearer things to think of than Moby Dick. For however eagerly and impetuously the savage crew had hailed the announcement of his quest, yet all sailors of all sorts are more or less capricious and unreliable. They live in the varying outer weather, and they inhale its fickleness and when retained for any object remote and blank in the pursuit, however promissory of life and passion in the end, it is above all things requisite that temporary interests and employments should intervene and hold them healthily suspended for the final dash. Nor was Ahab unmindful of another thing. In times of strong emotion mankind disdain all base considerations, but such times are evanescent. The permanent constitutional condition of the manufactured man, thought Ahab, is sordidness. Granting that the white whale fully incites the hearts of this my savage crew, and playing round their savageness even breeds a certain generous knight-errantism in them, still, while for the love of it they give chase to Moby Dick, they must also have food for their more common, 
daily appetites, for even the high-lifted and chivalric crusaders of old times were not content to traverse two thousand miles of land to fight for their holy sepulcher without committing burglaries, picking pockets, and gaining other pious prerequisites along the way. Had they been strictly held to their one final and romantic object, that final and romantic object too many of them would have turned from in disgust. I will not strip these men, thought Ahab, of all hopes of cash. A cash. They may scorn cash now, but let some months go by and no prospective promise of it to them, and then this same quiescent cash all at once mutinying in them, this same cash would soon cashier Ahab. Nor was there wanting still another precautionary motive more related to Ahab personally. Having impulsively, it is probable, and perhaps somewhat prematurely revealed the prime but private purpose of the Pequod's voyage, Ahab... <laughs> prime... Perhaps somewhat prematurely revealed the prime but private purpose of the Pequod's voyage. I mean... <laughs> it's so good. <clears throat> Ahab, now entirely conscious that, in so doing, he had indirectly laid himself open to the unanswerable charge of usurpation, and with perfect impunity, both moral and legal, his crew, if so disposed, and to that end competent, could refuse all further obedience to him, and even violently wrest from him the command. From even the barely hinted imputation of usurpation and the possible consequences of such a suppressed impression gaining ground, Ahab must, of course, have been most anxious to protect himself. That protection could only consist in his own predominating brain and heart and hand, backed by a heedful, closely calculating attention to every minute atmospheric influence which it was possible for his crew to be subjected to. For all these reasons, then, and others perhaps too analytic to be verbally developed here, Ahab plainly saw that he must still, in a good degree, continue true to the natural, nominal purpose of the Pequod's voyage, observe all customary usages, and not only that, but force himself to evince all his well-known passionate interest in the general pursuit of his profession. Be all this as it may. His voice was now often heard hailing the three mastheads and admonishing them to keep a bright lookout and not omit reporting even a porpoise. This vigilance was not long without reward. Chapter 47 The Matmaker It was a cloudy, sultry afternoon. The seamen were lazily lounging about the decks or vacantly gazing over into the lead-colored waters. Queequeg and I were mildly employed, weaving what is called a sword mat for an additional lashing to our boat. So still and subdued, and yet somehow preluding was all the scene, and such an incantation of reverie lurked in the air that each silent sailor seemed resolved into his own invisible self. I was the attendant, or page, of Queequeg, while busy at the mat. As I kept passing and repassing the filling or woof of marlin between the long yarns of the warp using my own hand for the shuttle, and as Queequeg, standing sideways ever and anon, slid his heavy oaken sword between the threads and, 
idly looking off upon the water, carelessly and unthinkingly drove home every yarn. I say, so strange a dreaminess did there then reign over all the ship and all over the sea, only broken by the intermitting dull sound of the sword, that it seemed as if this were the loom of time, and I myself were a shuttle, mechanically weaving and weaving away at the fates. There lay the fixed threads of the warp, subject to all but one single, ever-returning, unchanging vibration, and that vibration merely enough to admit of the crosswise interblending of other threads with its own. This warp seemed necessity, and here, thought I, with my own hand I ply my own shuttle and weave my own destiny into these unalterable threads. Meantime, Queequeg's impulsive, indifferent sword, sometimes hitting the woof slantingly, or crookedly, or strongly, or weakly, as the case might be, and by this difference in the concluding blow, producing a corresponding contrast in the final aspect of the completed fabric, this savage's sword, thought I, which thus finally shapes and fashions both warp and woof, this easy, indifferent sword must by chance, a chance, free will, and necessity, nowise incompatible, all interweavingly working together, the straight warp of necessity not to be swerved from its ultimate course, its every alternating vibration, indeed only tending to that, free will, still free, to ply her shuttle between given threads, and chance, though restrained in its play with the right lines of necessity, and sideways in its motions directed by free will, though thus ever prescribed to buy both, chance by turns rules either, and has the last featuring blow at events. Thus we were weaving, and weaving away when I started at a sound so strange, long-drawn, and musically wild and unearthly, that the ball of free will dropped from my hand and I stood gazing up at the clouds whence the voice dropped like a wing. High aloft in the cross trees was that mad gay header Tashtigo. His body was reaching eagerly forward, his hand stretched out like a wand, and at brief sudden intervals he continued his cries. To be sure, the same sound was the very same moment perhaps being heard all over the seas, from hundreds of whalemen's lookouts perched as high in the air, but from few of those lungs could that accustomed old cry be derived such a marvelous cadence as from Tashtigo, the Indians. As he stood hovering over you, half suspended in air, so wildly and eagerly peering towards the horizon, you would have thought him some prophet or seer beholding the shadows of fate, and by those wild cries announcing their coming. There she blows! There! There! There she blows! She blows! Where away! On the lee beam, about two miles off, a school of them! Instantly all was commotion. The sperm whale blows as a clock ticks, with the same undeviating and reliable uniformity, and thereby whalemen distinguish this fish from other tribes of his genus. There go flukes! was now the cry from Tashtigo, and the whales disappeared. Quick! Steward! cried Ahab. Time! Time! Doughboy hurried below, glanced at the watch, and reported the exact minute to Ahab. The ship was now kept away from the wind, and she went gently rolling before it. 
Tashtigo reporting that the whales had gone down head heading to leeward. We confidently looked to see them again directly in advance of our bows. For that singular craft, at time evinced by the sperm whale, when sounding with his head in one direction, he nevertheless, while concealed beneath the surface, mills round and swiftly swims off in the opposite quarter. This deceitfulness of his could not now be in action, for there was no reason to suppose that the fish seen by Tashtigo had been in any way alarmed, or indeed knew at all of our vicinity. One of the men selected for shipkeepers, that is, those not appointed to the boats, by this time relieved the Indian at the mainmast head. The sailors at the fore and mizzen had come down, the line tubs were fixed to their places, the cranes were thrust out, the main yard was backed, and the three boats swung over the sea like three samphor baskets over high cliffs. Outside of the bulwarks, their eager crews with one hand clung to the rail while one foot was expectantly poised on the gunwale. So look the long line of man-of-war's men about to throw themselves on board an enemy ship. But at this critical instant, a sudden exclamation was heard that took every eye from the whale. With a start, all glared at dark Ahab, who was surrounded by five dusky phantoms that seemed fresh-formed out of air. Chapter 48 The First Lowering The Phantoms for so they then seemed, were flitting on the other side of the deck, and with a noiseless celerity were casting loose the tackles and bands of the boat which swung there. This boat had always been deemed one of the spare boats, though technically called the captain's on account of its hanging from the starboard quarter. The figure that now stood by its bows was tall and swart, with one white tooth evilly protruding from its steel-like lips. A rumpled Chinese jacket of black cotton funerarily invested him, with wide black trousers of the same dark stuff, but strangely crowning this ebonness was a glistening white plated turban, the living hair braided and coiled round and round upon his head. Less swart in aspect, the companions of this figure were of that vivid tiger-yellow complexion peculiar to some of the aboriginal natives of the Manilas a race notorious for a certain diabolism of subtlety, and by some honest white mariners supposed to be the paid spies and secret confidential agents on the water of the devil, their lord, whose counting-room they supposed to be elsewhere. While yet the wandering ship's company were gazing upon these strangers, Ahab cried out to the white-turbaned old man at their head, Already there, Fidala! Ready, was the half-hissed reply. Lower away there, do you hear? Shouting across the deck, Lower away there, I say! Such was the thunder of his voice that, spite of their amazement, the men sprang over the rail. The sheaves whirled round in their blocks. With a wallow, the three boats dropped into the sea, while, with a dexterous off-handed daring unknown in any other vocation, the sailors, goat-like, leapt down the rolling ship's side into the tossing boats below. Hardly had they pulled out from under the ship's lee when a fourth keel, coming from the windward side, pulled round under the stern and showed the five strangers rowing Ahab, who stood erect in the stern, loudly hailed Starbuck, Stub, Flask, to spread themselves widely so as to cover a large expanse of water. But with all their eyes again riveted upon the swart Fidala and his crew, the inmates of the other boats obeyed not the command. Cotton Ahab! said Starbuck. Spread yourselves, cried Ahab. Give way, all four boats. Thou, Flask, pull out more to leeward. Aye, aye, sir, cheerily cried little King Post, sweeping round his great steering oar. Lay back, addressing his crew. There, there, there again. There she blows. Right ahead, boys. Lay back. 
Never heed you on the yellow boys, Archie. Oh, I don't mind them, sir, said Archie. I knew it all before now. Didn't I hear him in the hold? And didn't I tell Kabako here of it? What say you, Kabako? They are stowaways, Mr. Flask. Pull, pull my fine hearts alive. Pull, my children, pull, my little ones. Drawlingly and soothingly sidestubbed to his crew, some of whom still showed signs of uneasiness. What did you break your backbones, my boys? What is it that you stare at? Those chaps in yonder boat? There are only five more hands come to help us. Never mind from where, the more the merrier. Pull, then, do pull. Never mind the brimstone devils, good fellows enough. So, so, there you are now. There's a stroke for a thousand pounds. There's a stroke to sweep the stakes. Hurrah for the gold cup of sperm oil, my heroes. Three cheers, men. All hearts alive. Easy, easy. Don't be in a hurry. Don't be in a hurry. Why don't you snap your oars, you rascals? Bite some of the new dogs. So, 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 so. Then, softly, softly. That's it. That's it. Long and strong. Give way there. Give way. The devil fetch ye, you ragamuffin rapscallions. Y'all are asleep. Stop snoring, you sleepers, and pull. Pull, will you? Pull, pull, pull. Can't you pull, won't you? Why, in the name of gudgeons and ginger cakes, don't you pull? Pull and break something. Pull and stretch your eyes out. Here! Whipping out the sharp knife from his girdle. Every mother's son of you draw his knife and put it the blade between your teeth. That's it, that's it now. And you start something that looks like it. My steel bits, starter, starter with my silver spoon. Starter, your myelin spikes. Stubbs' exordium to his crew is given here at large because he had a rather a peculiar way of talking to them in general and especially in inculcating the religion of rowing. But you must not suppose from this specimen of his sermonizings that he ever flew into downright passions with his congregation, not at all, and therein consisted his chief peculiarity. He would say the most terrific things to his crew in a tone so strangely compounded of fun and fury, and the fury seemed so calculated merely as a spice to the fun that no oarsman could hear such queer invocations without pulling for dear life, and yet pulling for the mere joke of the thing. Besides, he all the time looked so easy and indolent himself, so loungingly managed his steering oar, and so broadly gaped, open-mouthed at times, that the mere sight of such a yawning commander, by sheer force of contrast, acted like a charm upon the crew. Then again, Stubb was one of those odd sort of humorists whose jollity is sometimes so curiously ambiguous as to put all inferiors on their guard in the matter of obeying them. In obedience to a sign from Ahab, Starbuck was now pulling obliquely across Stubb's bow, and when for a minute or so the boats were pretty near to each other, Stubb hailed the mate. Mr. Starbuck, larboard boat there, ahoy. A word with me, sir, if you please. Hello, returned Starbuck, turning round, not a single inch as he spoke, still earnestly but whisperingly urging his crew, his face set like a flint from Stubb's. What do you think of those yellow boys, sir? Smuggled on board, somehow, before the ship sailed. Strong, strong boys. In a whisper to his crew, then speaking out loud again, A sad business, Mr. Staub. See them, see them, my lads. But never mind, Mr. Staub. All the best. Let all your crew pull strong, come what will. Spring, my men, spring. There's hogsheads of sperm ahead, Mr. Staub, and that's what we came for. Pull, my boys. Sperm, sperm's the play. This at least is duty, duty and profit hand in hand. Hey, hey, I thought as much, soliloquized Stubb, when the boats diverged. As soon as I clapped eyes on him, I thought so. Hey, that's what I went into after the hold for, so often as Doughboy long suspected. They were hidden down there, the white whales at the bottom of it. Well, well, so be it, can be helped, all right, all right. Give way, men, it ain't the white whale today, give way. 
Now the advent of these outlandish strangers at such a critical instant as the lowering of the boats from the deck, this had not unreasonably awakened a sort of superstitious amazement in some of the ship's company. But Archie's fancied discovery, having some time previous got abroad among them, though indeed not credited them, this had in some small measure prepared them for the event. It took off the extreme edge of their wonder, and so what with all this and Stubbs' confident way of accounting for their appearance, they were for the time freed from superstitious surmisings, though the affair still left abundant room for all manner of wild conjectures as to Dark Ahab's precise agency in the matter from the beginning. For me, I silently recalled the mysterious shadows I had seen creeping on board the Pequod during the dim Nantucket dawn, as well as the enigmatical hintings of the unaccountable Elijah. Meanwhile, Ahab, out of hearing of his officers, having sighted the furthest to windward, was still ranging ahead of the other boats, a circumstance bespeaking how potent a crew was pulling him. Those tiger-yellow creatures of his seemed all steel and whalebone. Like five trip-hammers, they rose and fell with regular strokes of strength, which periodically started the boat along the water like a horizontal burst boiler out of a Mississippi steamer. As for Fidala, who was seen pulling the harpooner oar, he had thrown aside his black jacket and displayed his naked chest with the whole part of his body above the gunwale, clearly cut against the alternating depressions of the watery horizon, while at the other end of the boat Ahab, with one arm like a fencer's thrown half backward into the air as if to counterbalance any tendency to trip, Ahab was seen steadily managing his steering oar as in a thousand boat lowerings ere the white whale had torn him. All at once the outstretched arm gave a peculiar motion and then remained fixed while the boat's five oars were seen simultaneously peaked. Boat and crew sat motionless in the sea. Instantly the three spread boats in the rear paused on their way. The whales had irregularly settled bodily down into the blue, thus giving no distinctly discernible token of the movement, though from his closer vicinity Ahab had observed it. "'Every man look out along his oars!' cried Starbuck. "'Thou, Queequeg, stand up!' Nimbly springing up on the triangular raised box in the bow, the savage stood erect there, and with intensely eager eyes gazed off towards the spot where the chase had last been described. Likewise, upon the extreme stern of the boat, where it was also triangularly platformed, level with the gunwale, Starbuck himself was seen coolly and adroitly balancing himself to the jerking tossings of his chip of a craft, and silently eyeing the vast blue eye of the sea. Not very far distant, Flask's boat was also lying breathlessly still, its commander recklessly standing upon the top of the loggerhead, a stout sort of post rooted in the keel and raising to some two feet above the level of the stern platform. It is used for catching turns with the whale-line. Its top is not more spacious than the palm of a man's hand, and standing upon such a base as that, Flask seemed perched at the masthead of some ship which had sunk to all but her trucks. But Little King Post was small and short, and at the same time Little King Post was full of a large and tall ambition, so that this loggerhead standpoint of his did by no means satisfy King Post. I can't see three seas off! Tip us up an oar there, and let me on that! Upon this, Dago, with either hand upon the gunwale to steady his way, swiftly slid aft, and then, erecting himself, volunteered his lofty shoulders for a pedestal. Good a masthead as any, sir. Will you mount? That I will, and thank you very much, my fine fellow. Only I wish you fifty feet taller. 
Whereupon, planting his feet firmly against two opposing planks of the boat, the gigantic negro stooped a little, presented his flat palm to Flask's foot, and then putting Flask's hand upon his hearse-plumed head and bidding him spring as he landed, should toss with one dexterous fling, landing the little man high and dry on his shoulders. And here was Flask now standing. Dago, with one lifted arm, furnishing him with a breastband to lean against and steady himself by. At any time, it is a strange sight to the Tiro to see what wondrous habitude of unconscious skill the whaleman will maintain an erect posture in his boat, even when pitched about by the most riotously perverse and cross-running seas. Still more strange to see him giddily perched upon the loggerhead itself under such circumstances, but the sight of little flask mounted upon gigantic dago was yet more curious for sustaining himself with a cool, indifferent, easy, unthought-of barbarian barbaric majesty, the noble negro to every roll of the sea harmoniously rolled his fine form. On his broad back, flaxen-haired flask seemed a snowflake, the bearer looking nobler than the rider. Though truly vivacious, tumultuous, ostentatious, little flask would now and then stamp with impatience, but not one added heave did he thereby give to the negro's lordly chest. So have I seen passion and vanity stamping the living magnanimous earth, but the earth did not alter her tides and her seasons for that. Meanwhile, Stubb, the third mate, betrayed no such far-gazing solicitudes. The whales might have made one of their regular soundings, not a temporary dive from mere fright, and if that were the case, Stubb, as his wont in such cases, it seems, was resolved to solace the languishing interval with his pipe. He withdrew it from his hat-band, where he always wore it aslant like a feather. He loaded it and rammed home the loading with his thumb-end, but hardly had he ignited his match across the rough sandpaper of his hand when Tashtigo, his harpooner, whose eyes had been setting to windward like two fixed stars, suddenly dropped like light from his erect attitude in his seat, crying out in a quick frenzy of a hurry, Down! Down all, and give way! There they are! To a landsman, no whale, nor any sign of a herring, would have been visible at that moment, nothing but a troubled bit of greenish-white water and thin scattered puffs of vapor hovering over it, and suffusingly blowing off to leeward, like the confused scud from a white rolling billows. The air around suddenly vibrated and tingled, as it were, like the air over intensely heated plates of iron. Beneath this atmospheric waving and curling, and partially beneath a thin layer of water also, the whales were swimming. Seen in advance of all other indications, the puffs of vapor they spouted seemed their forerunning couriers and detached flying outriders. All four boats were now in keen pursuit of that one spot of troubled water and air, but it bade fair to outstrip them. It flew on and on as a mass of interblending bubbles borne down a rapid stream from the hills. Paul, Paul, my good boys! said Starbuck in the lowest possible but intensest concentrated whisper to his men, while the sharp fixed glance from his eyes darted straight ahead of the bow, almost seemed as two visible needles in two unerring binnacle compasses. He did not say much to his crew, though, nor did his crew say anything to him, only the silence of the boat was at intervals startlingly pierced by one of his peculiar whispers, now harsh with command, now soft with entreaty. 
how different the loud little king post. Sing out and say something, my hearties. Roar and pull, my thunderbolts. Beach me. Beach me on their black backs, boys. Only do that for me and I'll sign you over my Martha's Vineyard Plantation, boys, including my wife and children, boys. Lay me on. Lay me on. Oh, Lord, Lord, but sh I shall go stark, staring mad. See? See that white water? And so shouting, he pulled his hat from his head and stamped up and down on it, then picking it up, flirted it far off upon the sea, and finally fell to rearing and plunging in the boat's stern like a crazed colt from the prairie. Look up now, philosophically drawled Stubb, who, with his unlighted short pipe mechanically retained between his teeth at a short distance, followed after. He's got fits of flask ass. Fits, yes, give him fits. That's the very word. Punch fits into him. Merrily, merrily, hearts alive. Pudding for supper, you know. Mary's the word. Pull, babes. Pull, sucklings. Pull all. What the devil are you hearing about? Slowly, softly, and steady, my man. Only pull and keep pulling. Nothing more. Crack all your backbones and bite your knives in two. That's it. Take it easy. Why don't you take it easy, I say. Burst all your livers and lungs. But what it was that inscrutable Ahab said to that tiger-yellow crew of his, these were words best omitted here, for you live under the blessed light of the evangelical land. Only the infidel sharks in the audacious seas may give ear to such words when, with tornado blow and eyes of red murder and foam-glued lips, Ahab leapt after his prey. Meanwhile, all the boats tore on. The repeated specific allusions of Flask to that whale, as he called the fictitious monster which he declared to be incessantly tantalizing his boat's bow with its tail, these allusions of his were at times so vivid and lifelike that they would cause someone or two of his men to snatch a fearful look over the shoulder. But this was against all rule, for the oarsmen must put out their eyes and ram a skewer through their necks, usage pronouncing that they must have no organs but ears and no limbs but arms in these critical moments. It was a sight full of quick wonder and awe, the vast swells of the omnipotent sea, the surging hollow roar they made as they rolled along the eight gunnels like gigantic bulls in a boundless bowling green, the brief suspended agony of the boat as it would tip for an instant on the knife-like edge of the sharper waves that almost seemed threatening to cut it in two, the sudden profound dip into the watery glens and hollows, the keen spurrings and goadings to gain the top of the opposite hill, the headlong sled-like slide down on the other side, all these, with the cries of the headsmen and harpooners, and the shuddering gasps of the oarsmen, with the wondrous sight of the ivory Pequod bearing down upon her boats with outstretched sails like a wild hen after her screaming brood, all this was thrilling! <laughs> Not the raw recruit marching from the bosom of his wife into the fever heat of his first battle, not the dead man's ghost encountering the first unknown phantom in the other world, neither of these can feel stranger and stronger emotions than that a man does who for the first time finds himself pulling into the charmed, churned circle of the hunted sperm whale. The dancing white water made by the chase was now becoming more and more visible owing to the increasing darkness of the dun cloud shadows flung upon the sea. The jets of vapor no longer blended but tilted everywhere to right and left. The whales seemed separating their wakes. The boats were pulling more apart. Starbuck giving chase to three whales running dead to leeward. Our sail was now set and with the still rising wind we rushed along the boat going with such madness through the water that the leeors could scarcely be worked rapidly enough to escape being torn from the rowlock. Soon we were running through a suffusing wide veil of mist, neither ship nor boat to be seen. "'Give way, men!' whispered Starbuck, drawing still further aft the sheet of his sail. "'There's time to kill a fish yet before the squall comes. There's white water again, close to spring!' 
Soon after, two cries in quick succession on each side of us denoted that the other boats had got fast. But hardly were they overheard when, with a lightning-like hurtling whisper, Starbuck said, Stand up! And Queequeg, harpoon in hand, sprang to his feet. Though not one of the oarsmen was then facing the life-and-death peril so close to them ahead, yet, with their eyes on the intense countenance of the mate in the stern of the boat, they knew that the imminent instant had come. They heard, too, an enormous wallowing sound, as of fifty elephants stirring in their litter. Meanwhile, the boat was still booming through the mist, the waves curling and hissing around us like the erected crests of enraged serpents. "'There's his hump! There! There! Give it to him!' whispered Starbuck. A short, rushing sound leaped out of the boat. It was the darting iron of Queequeg. Then, all in one welded commotion, came an invisible push from astern, while forward the boat seemed striking on a ledge. The sail collapsed and exploded. A gush of scalding vapor shot up nearby. Something rolled and tumbled like an earthquake beneath us. The whole crew were half-suffocated as they were tossed helter-skelter into the white, curdling cream of the squall. Squall, whale, and harpoon had all blended together, and the whale merely grazed by the iron, escaped. Though completely swamped, the boat was nearly unharmed. Swimming round it, we picked up the floating oars and lashed them across the gunwale, tumbled back to our places. There we sat up to our knees in the sea, the water covering every rib and plank, so that to our downward-gazing eyes the suspended craft seemed a coral boat grown up to us from the bottom of the ocean. The wind increased to a howl, the waves dashed their bucklers together, the whole squall roared, forked, and crackled around us like a white fire upon the prairie, which, unconsumed, we were burning, immortal, in these jaws of death. In vain we hailed the other boats as well roar to the live coals down the chimney of a flaming furnace as hail those boats in that storm. Meanwhile, the driving scud, rack, and mist grew darker with the shadows of night. No sign of the ship could be seen. The rising sea forbade all attempts to bail out the boat. The oars were useless as propellers, performing now the office of life preservers. So, cutting the lashings of the waterproof match keg, after many failures, Starbuck contrived to ignite the lamp in the lantern, then, stretching it on a waif pole, handed it to Queequeg as the standard-bearer of his forlorn hope. There, then, he sat, holding up that imbecile candle in the heart of the almighty forlornness. There, then, he sat, the sign and symbol of a man without faith, hopelessly holding up hope in the midst of despair. Wet, drenched through, and shivering cold, despairing of ship or boat, we lifted our eyes as the dawn came on. The mist still spread over the sea, the empty lantern lay crushed at the bottom of the boat. Suddenly, Queequeg started to his feet, hollowing his hand to his ear. We all heard a faint creaking, as of ropes and yards hitherto muffled by the storm. The sound came nearer and nearer. The thick mists were dimly parted by a huge, vague form. Affrighted, we all sprang into the sea as the ship at last loomed into view, bearing right down upon us within a distance of not much more than its length. Floating on the waves, we saw the abandoned boat, as, for one instant, it tossed and gaped beneath the ship's bows like a chip at the base of a cataract, and then the vast hull rolled over it, and it was seen no more till it came up weltering astern. Again we swam for it, were dashed against it by seas, and were at last taken up and safely landed on board. Ere the squall came close to, the other boats had cut loose from their fish and returned to the ship in good time. The ship had given us up, but was still cruising, if, haply, it might light upon some token of our perishing, an oar or a lance pole. 
Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Strangely's Moby Dick. If you have comments, questions, or would like to purchase the full audiobook of this project straight away, please send an email to saftp at tuta.io. That's saftp at tuta.io. This project was supported by a distinguished group of wonderful patrons. Visit patreon.com strangely to learn more about how you can aid my ongoing attempts to amuse, inform, and occasionally mystify. I'll see you all in two weeks.